Way back in 1981, I don't know if any of you heard this story. It's a fascinating story of a group of terrorists who actually broke into the residence of the Institute of Linguistics, uh, otherwise known as SIL, S-I-L. Uh, anyway, it was in Bogota, Colombia, South America. They ended up uh, kidnapping one of the uh, Wycliffe Bible translators by the name of Chet Bitterman. Any of you heard of this story? Well, the report from the terrorists that was uh, sent back to the, to the, the, the Wycliffe people was this. They, they quote, Chet Bitterman will be executed unless the Institute of Linguistics and all its members leave Colombia by February 19th. That was about 30 days notice, by the way. Only gave him 30 days. And so the response, I, I love the response, because the Wycliffe didn't budge. Did not budge. In fact, uh, Chet's wife Brenda and her two little children ended up waiting 48 days. Didn't know what was happening to Chet. And then on March 7th, the terrorist shot Chet, uh, Chet Bitterman through the heart left his body laying on a bus there in Bogota, Colombia. More than 100 Wycliffe members in Colombia were actually given the choice whether they wanted to move to somewhere else uh, just because it was so dangerous. But none of them left. None of them. In fact, I love it because there was, there was actually 200 new candidates who volunteered to take, to, to take Chet Bitterman's place. And I read stories like that, and I wonder, well, how would I respond if I was in their shoes, if I was in that situation? How would I respond? How would you respond if God was putting you through a severe trial? It's a good question to ask, and that's the sort of thing that Peter is, is asking of us here in our text today in 1 Peter 4. And, and Peter's going to be really helpful and practical for us today, Remember, he is writing his particular letter here to Christians who face desperate circumstances. Uh, they experienced undeserved suffering, unfair treatment, unexpected calamities. And so in today's text, Peter's going to take us back to this theme of hope in hurtful times. And so let's look at Peter's practical insights here that are going to help us not just merely to survive the flames, but to actually thrive in the midst of them. So look at 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if he begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So here's the proposition which I believe is coming from our text. The proposition for you today is this, that God wants you to have the right response to suffering. He wants you to have the right response to suffering. We just read that many times it is God's will for us to suffer. But why should we have the right response to suffering? Well, why, why is this even coming up? Well, notice 
verse 12, it says there's that fiery trials are coming to God's people. If you look at verse 12, it talks about these fiery, fiery trials. And in this context here, Peter is writing about this. And it's interesting, the Bible's term there for fiery trial is um, a single word in the Greek language. Uh, maybe you've heard this word or, or similar takings of it. It's, it's Anyway, the Greek word pyrosis, pyre just means fire. Uh, we, we get other English words. You know, maybe you've heard the English word pyromaniac. <laughs> you know, somebody who is overly fascinated with fire, right? <laughs> His pyro, you know, he's, he's, he's into the fire, right? So it just refers to an agonizing experience of burning with fire. And notice in the text, there's a definite article, the, before the fiery trial just indicating peter had in mind a particular circumstances his readers were enduring together and we know this trial related to unjust treatment by unbelievers who actually despise christianity in fact that excruciating trial grew so severe that peter actually needed to write a letter reminding these believers as he calls them the beloved that uh, they had a source of hope even in the midst of a fiery trial, a severe trial. And he tells them here how to respond to trials or how to respond even during the trial. It's important for us to take note of this. When we're not going through a trial, it'll help us to remember these things when we are in them. So, but, but look what Peter says here in verses 12 and 13. He tells us how to respond during the trials. First of all, he gives us a negative command. He says, do not be surprised by trials. And for those of you who love the Greek, it's a present passive imperative. Uh, the, the, so the idea is that this is something you're to continuously do. It's not a one-off thing. You, We are to continuously believe this, know this, live this way. And it's not an option because it is an imperative. It is a command. It's ironic that Peter would command here, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Because there's a large portion of Christendom A lot of Christians believe that they should somehow be fireproof. They they, they somehow shouldn't go through trials, and life should just be prosperous. You should be wealthy and have good health and so forth, right? The health, wealth, prosperity gospel is everywhere in the world. And and so, you know, if if a trial does happen in their life, they, they might say things like this, well, hey, I can't believe this is happening to me. Why doesn't God protect me from these things? And why is God allowing this to happen now? <laughs> Maybe some of you have even asked those kind of questions. But Peter responds to this really a normal reaction of surprise with an important reminder here. Notice what he says in verse 12. He, he says, The fiery trial comes on believers for their testing. It is for your testing. It's kind of like what people do with gold in, in, in its raw state. It's like the refiner's fire that tests and, and purifies gold. It's, what is it doing? It's separating the precious metal of gold from the impure contaminants. That just doesn't happen on its own. It takes hot fire to accomplish that purpose. And so the fire of trials test and purify us from within and another way to think about this it might be helpful to view our present life as kind of like a schoolroom, where you have god as your teacher he is our teacher now if you were sitting in a school classroom you wouldn't at least i hope you wouldn't i'm not surprised when a human teacher gives me a a test or an exam even if it comes as a surprise i 
that that's kind of just normal. Tests are normal when you're involved in the pursuit of intellectual growth or you're developing some skills. So if that's normal in that setting, why should it alarm us then if the great master teacher chooses to test us? It shouldn't. And so Peter's first response here in dealing with any kind of trial is don't be surprised. That is the right response. Don't be surprised. The second thing he says is in verse 13. 1 Peter 4.13, he says, but rejoice. <laughs> but rejoice. And by the way, this is a present active imperative verb. Again, it's continuous action. It is a command. It's something that you are supposed to do. You say, rejoice? Wait a minute. He's talking about trials. In fact, severe, fiery trials. How is that even possible? How can I rejoice in the midst of a severe trial? Well, what Peter does here, look what, look what he does in verse 13. He says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Wow. So Peter takes the believer's present suffering in this world there, and then what he does is he actually directs the believers backwards to the sufferings of Christ as its source. Peter's already talked about in, in, in the previous chapter about previous chapters about Christ's sufferings. And we're to expect the same thing. And then as he as he points backwards, then he, what he does is he he sends us all forward to the return of Christ as the goal. That, that glory of Christ's return is the goal of this. So in suffering unjustly, we're participating in a limited degree in the kind of suffering that Christ experienced on our behalf. So think of it this way. If our master suffered, Jesus said, so will my disciples. And at the same time, by the way, we're here urged to rejoice. In fact, it is a command. And, and so we're, we're this urging to rejoice. Why? Knowing that at Christ's return, he's going to bring with him relief. He's going to bring with him the rewards for anybody who has suffered faithfully in this life. In fact, there actually is a crown, a reward. The sufferer's crown is mentioned, which I won't bring up right now, but it is in the Bible. So, therefore, our firm hope for the future here can then reflect backward into the present, allowing us then to rejoice even in the midst of a severe trial. One of the examples that comes to my mind of, of, of someone who experienced a very severe trial is Job. Just think of Job for a moment. I mean, here's, here's a very wealthy man, a well-respected man. God describes him as blameless. But yet, the Bible also says in one day, in fact, it, it, when you read the scripture, Job chapter 1 and 2, it comes across as, as like it, every bad thing happened to him all at once. So he goes from being a wealthy farmer to he lost his farm, his livestock, his wealth, his, his servants, his reputation, and all ten of his children died. All at once. Gone. Everything. And all that Satan left him was a nagging wife. Right? That's all he's left with. And at the moment, he still has his health, but that's going to go soon too. But after all of that happening, I want you to see Job's response here in Job 1, verse 20. Amazing response, is it? Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground, and grumbled and complained, right? Uh, it doesn't say that. He committed suicide. No, it doesn't say that either. It says he worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Wow, I, I read that, and I, man, how did he do that? <laughs> How is that even possible? 
well, God's grace is truly amazing. He, he, he knew who God was, who he was. He didn't have the scriptures, so I'm an amazing man. But uh, that is the kind of response that, that I hope that we could have as we go through a severe trial. But you might ask, where in the world do you get the kind of strength to rejoice in the face of persecution and possible torture and death? How is that, that going to happen? Well, this particular text here gives at least four answers to that. Number one, I'll just put them all on the screen at once here for you. Number one, it, it, it starts with a good theology. <laughs> You can't have this kind of response with prosperity gospel thinking. Prosperity gospel will not lead you to that a rejoicing in severe trial response. It won't happen. Because if a severe, ha- a severe trial happens to somebody who believes in the health, wealth, prosperity gospel, then they immediately think, what? There's something wrong with me. I'm lacking in faith or something or or I'm not saved, or whatever it is, right? It, you know, God's punishing me, or whatever it might be. So it's certainly not a prosperity gospel theology is going to help you here. Peter's pointing us to good theology. He's, he's, he's pointing us back to what Jesus said. Christ suffered. He said, you're going to suffer. Paul put it this way, all who live godly shall suffer persecution. That's good theology. But Peter also points us to verse 13 to the hope of glory. The hope of glory. In other words, there, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, we might be going through persecution. We might be facing death. But there is hope. There is hope. And we can be glad, as he says in verse 13, when Christ's glory is revealed. And in verses 17 and 18, we'll, we're going to elaborate on these a little later, but just bear with me. The, the third point that needs to be made is that the fear of what becomes of unbelievers should also be helpful to those who are believers. Scary stuff is going to happen to the unbelievers. Peter mentions it's going to be worse for them than it is for us. So your best life is not now if you're a believer. And then number four Peter says that God's going to send His Holy Spirit to sustain you. I love verse 14. Look at that. See, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, Peter says in verse 14, you are blessed. Why? Why? Because he says, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Hopefully you know you, you have good theology. and you, you believe all believers have the Holy Spirit indwelling. So he's always the, the, the third member of the Trinity. The Godhead is, is always there. He never departs from a believer. And it's, Peter's encouraging us, hey, God is with you, even in the midst of a severe trial, even if you're in prison and being tortured and dying and so forth. God's not going to just be a distant God. He's there for you. So those are some of the things that Peter brings out. That is how it's possible to rejoice in a severe trial. But it's also important that we think right. And so Peter goes on to tell us, here's some things you need to remember during trials. Do not forget these truths. Not only this is how I'm supposed to respond, which is don't be surprised, but rejoice. But Peter tells us how to think. These are some things we need to know. We need to remember during trials. Number one, trials provide an opportunity to draw us to draw upon God's power. You're not alone. You're not alone. Because we just read in verse 14 that God gives us the Holy Spirit to sustain us. And so when faced with trials, it's we, we easily just come to the end of ourselves. You might feel like you're at the end of the rope. You've tied, you've tied a knot on the rope and you're just kind of like hanging on desperately. Well, maybe. And, and at that desperate point, we can quickly become mentally confused. We can be emotionally drained. 
We can even be physically exhausted and sometimes even spiritually spent. And if that's your case, it's a good place to be, really, sometimes. From a purely human perspective, we often think, well, that's a really bad place to be. That's the worst possible situation to be in. But from God's perspective, that is precisely the condition that is necessary for us to draw upon His power. See, we're never more dependent on the Holy Spirit's strength than when we've come to the end of ourselves, the absolute end. So as long as we're just operating under this illusion that we can handle things ourselves, we're just going to wallow in spiritual weakness. God's just going to let you do things your way, your strength, kind of wallow around it like a pig in the mud. But when we finally admit, though, that apart from Christ, we can do nothing, then we can begin to draw upon that divine power, which he's talking about in verse 14. It's the spirit of glory and of God resting upon you. <laughs> so when you're reviled for your faith in Christ, as he talked about here, what does God say? God promises you something. He's promising to provide you strength by the Holy Spirit. And in this way, then, we are blessed, it says. You are blessed when the Spirit rests upon you. Even despite the circumstances, even in the midst of unfair and unjust treatment, you are blessed. So, what are you to remember during trials? Number one, trials provide an opportunity to draw upon God's power. Number two, Peter tells us here that some suffering is deserved. Some suffering is deserved. We need to remember this. See, not all suffering is unjust. <laughs> Notice Peter here in verse 15, he chooses several examples of some things believers could do to, to receive the wrath of unbelievers. Notice the first two things he mentions in verse 15 are, uh, are murder and theft. So these are two offenses that are actually violations of our law, are they not? So if you violate the government's law, you can expect their wrath, whatever form that might take. So that kind of punishment is, is actually just and deserved. It's appropriate for believers and unbelievers both to be punished for those kind of crimes. And so they shouldn't be surprised. We should actually expect that to happen in those circumstances. Should not expect blessing from God if you commit murder or theft. What, what should you expect? Well, the Bible says if you're a child of God, you should expect chastening. You should expect His discipline because He loves you. That's what you should expect. Well, the second two offenses Peter mentions here are committing evil and meddling, which seem to be just moral and social offenses. So believers can, here's the point, okay? Believers can sometimes conduct themselves hypocritically. In other words, we can be actually become instruments of wickedness instead of just being a conduit of God's righteousness. And so we can sometimes align ourselves with various causes or activities that in, it, we might think they're good things, but that what they end up doing is just irritating unbelievers. I don't know. Uh, whatever comes to your mind. You, Greenpeace was the first thing that came to my mind. <laughs> so, you know, Greenpeace, you know, they, they, they've got a false god they worship, and they, they what they do is serving their God. But in the process, they're even irritating unbelievers. I don't think that's a worthy cause for a Christian to get involved in. And so, that might be something that Peter's talking about here. You're, you're involved in meddling. You know, if you chain yourself to a tree and you get thrown in jail for that, well, <laughs> Peter say, you're meddling! You're just getting what you deserve. 
don't think you're suffering for Christ when you chain yourself to a tree or whatever, you know, whatever, okay? But the term meddling there refers to somebody who just is interfering in things that are unrelated to his or her calling. God hasn't called me to do that sort of thing. And it, sometimes it's easy for Christians to just kind of drift off into politics or they might get involved in some social cause that has little to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, we, we lose our focus. We, we lose sight of what we're really supposed to be involved in. And we get ourselves in trouble in the process. And so Peter advises us here to make sure we don't engage in activities that would get us off target, that might actually bring reproach to the name of Christ. Don't get involved in those kind of things. Because that kind of suffering is actually deserved. Number three, how should we think in regard to trials? Well, number three, if we suffer as Christians because of our righteousness, this suffering should not cause us to feel shame. That might be your normal response. You might feel shame. You might. But look what Peter says. Verse 16. 1 Peter 4, verse 16. He says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now, let let me just explain something to you, because the word Christian today gets thrown around a lot, and, and unfortunately it's lost a lot of its original meaning. We, we kind of use this word commonly today. And the name Christian, by the way, did you know it only appears three times in your whole New Testament? Its original meaning gives us some insight into Peter's use of the name here. Acts chapter 11 is, uh, I, I think, the first time it's used. And here's what it says, Acts eleven twenty six. It says, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. In fact, Christian originally may have been a derogatory word. Almost like a swear word. <laughs> it was not a term of endearment. It wasn't something nice. It was used by the opponents of Christianity originally. And so Peter says if a Christian suffers because he or she bears the name of Christ in your word as well as your actions then you have no reason to be ashamed. Don't feel guilty. Don't feel shame. In fact, such suffering here is to be viewed as an honor, Peter said. It is an honor to be called a Christian and to suffer as a Christian. You're identifying with Christ. (laughs) Who better could you identify with? And so number three, we see that to suffer as Christians here is is something we should not feel shame over, okay? Number four, what do we need to remember during trials? Well, number four, suffering is timely and necessary. It is timely and necessary. Look what Peter says in verse 17. He says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Well, though it's always difficult to endure, believers need hurtful times. We need it. Why? We need to be purified. And God uses suffering, like like the heat in the gold. He uses suffering as a tool to sanctify us, to cleanse us, to refine His people. By the way, that phrase, household of God, is referring to believers, the Christians, to the church. And we need to understand, taking that imagery, that the household of God needs to be dusted regularly. It needs to be cleaned out. It needs some sweeping. But it also needs spring cleaning. Ladies, men, I hope you get involved in this too. Right? Spring cleaning. Why do we do that? The house builds up dust and dirt and, right, it's just that's the way it is in a fallen world, right? 
Isn't it amazing how all the little dust bunnies get behind everything? It's just Stuff just builds up over the year. And I don't know what you do in your family, but it's normal for us. It may not necessarily be in the spring, but often is. Just go around the house cleaning various things and because they need cleaning. Disgusting if you don't, isn't it? Well, that's the way it is in the household of God. We, we need some sanctifying, cleansing, refining to be done. The reality is that we endure purifying discipline because we are God's children. Not in spite of it, but because we are God's children. If you're a parent, you, you know that discipline can be both a positive as well as a negative thing. So discipline can correct bad behavior, but discipline also promotes good behavior. And so the fact that God allows us to endure fiery trials for the purpose of discipline, Peter says, should not surprise us, should not discourage us, but it actually should encourage us. You know, one of the reasons you, you can know that you're a believer in Christ is when you're going through chastening, you're being disciplined, because God disciplines His children. And the Bible says in, in Hebrews 12, in fact, He loves you when He disciplines you. So it should encourage us to know that God cares enough about His children to remove and discipline us, or, or sorry, reprove us, in order to bring us to maturity. Why, why do parents discipline children? It's to help them mature. The Bible talks about the rod of correction driving the foolishness from them so they that they can mature. We don't want them staying little children, right? We want them to grow up. God wants His children to grow up. And that's what He uses suffering to accomplish that. It's, it is timely and it's necessary. Number five. What believers suffer now cannot be compared to what the unbelievers are going to suffer later. Peter mentions this here, verses 17 and 18. And so even though the church is suffering now, and in fact, you, you, you read anything about church history, it seems there are more believers dying today than ever. You look at various parts of the world like Asia, Middle East, they're suffering. And those who afflict us are not going to get away with it. Do you think God sits in heaven and closes His ears to the cries of His children? No way. He hears the cries of His children. He hears their prayers. He knows what they're enduring. Essentially, Peter reasons here that if God's own children can't escape His discipline then we can't imagine what kind of punishment is in, is in store for the unbelievers here who rebel against Him. Look at verse 17. Uh, as After he talks about the household of God, the believers, he says, and if it begins with us, if this judgment and discipline begins with us, what will become of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And then he quotes from the Old Testament in verse 18 when he says, If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? The, the comparison or contrast is, it's going to be worse. It will be worse. <laughs> Scary thought, isn't it? So, we need to recognize and we need to remember that it is going to be worse for them. So we need to have pity. If, you, if you're experiencing suffering at the hand of an unbeliever, you ought to pity them. You ought to have compassion on them. I know that's hard to do when you're in the midst of it, but can you understand why Jesus at the cross says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? He understands if, if they continue in their sin and their unbelief, it is going to be way worse for them. And that's why you see so many believers around the world when they suffer, they got the same response that Jesus had. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's an appropriate response. But Peter also tells us how to think here in 
Number six, he says that suffering requires commitment. It requires commitment. In verse 19, he kind of sums up really the whole book of First Peter. It's kind of a summary statement in verse 19 when he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Another present imperative Greek verb there, that word entrust. So Peter's saying there's, there's two things you need to do while you're suffering. Number one, commit yourself to God. Commit yourself to God. Why? <laughs> in other words, you say, well, can I, can I really trust God in the midst of a severe trial? Yes, you can. And Peter gives you two reasons. Number one, well, basically, here's the two reasons. Peter's basically telling us, kind of summing up who God is. He's saying that God is always good and God is always great. Always. He's always good and he's always great. In the idea of that he is good, we see the word faithful. Peter points to God's faithfulness. In other words, he is a God who is totally reliable, totally trustworthy. He is dependable. When he says he's going to do something, it will always happen. When he says it won't happen, it won't happen. He's going to be where he says he is, which, by the way, he said he's everywhere. When he says, I will never forsake you and, and, and never leave you, you can count on it. Right? When he makes a promise, it's, it's settled. And that's good news. That's the kind of person that I can commit myself to. A person of his word. And not only is he a good God, he's a great God, which means when he says something, he can do it. <laughs> Unlike me, I can say something. I can have all the great intentions, but I, I don't necessarily have the greatness and the power to accomplish that. And neither do you. But God's different because Peter describes him as the great creator. Now this is the one when he spoke, stars appear in space. This is the person who, when he speaks, worlds are created. Animals come into being. Human beings are made. The whole universe was created by his power. Wow. And when he's ready to be done with it, it will be spoken out of existence too, by the way. And he'll make all things new. And so we can commit ourselves to that kind of God, can't we? So... If he chooses to test me and send me through the fire of affliction and suffering, well, then so be it. It might be hard, but he's going to give me the grace, and his grace is always going to be sufficient. He is more than enough. And by the way, I want you to note that the commitment here is not just a single action. This is a constant attitude. Be constantly committing yourself is, is the, the idea here behind this command. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, practically speaking, it's, it's by means of doing good. And so Peter says, you commit yourself to God by doing good. You don't stop doing good. <laughs> Even in the midst of the trial, you keep doing good. Other parts of Scripture say you overcome evil with good. And so as you're returning the good for evil and you're doing good, even though you're suffering for it, we're committing ourselves to God in the process. You're handing yourself over to His good care. And so this commitment involves every area of our lives, every hour of your day. And if we really have hope, then you're going to believe that Jesus is coming again. You're going to believe there's an end somewhere to that suffering. And you're going to obey His Word. You're going to lay up treasure in heaven. You're going to persevere. You're going to endure because there's hope. So my friends, be encouraged because as you serve God, you're actually committing yourselves to God and you're making it an investment for the future. So even in your suffering, you're laying up treasure in heaven. So suffering requires commitment. Commitment to God, commitment to keep doing right. Keep doing good. Well, the trials we endure are never wasted. 
They're not a mistake. God is nev- never sits in heaven and says, whoops, I made a mistake. <laughs> he never says that. He's, he's never going to say, uh, oh, whoops, um, Michael the archangel. That trial was meant for John, not Sam. You made a mistake. No, he's, he doesn't say that. He doesn't, God just doesn't indiscriminately toss trials out of heaven, you know, at, at the lives of, say, a hundred believers and, and hoping to affect a few of them. Never happened. See, God has designed a specific curriculum for you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He, he, he's got exactly the right curriculum that is going to test you. You're going to go through tough exams and you're going to come out the side better for it. And so, what's, what's our response, though? We need to recognize God's given us a particular course of study. He has a purpose in that. It's designed to bring out the character of Jesus Christ in you. And those uniquely designed and tailor-made trials that, that has been provided for you, come from God. They are tailor-made like a suit that has been perfectly designed for you. And it is producing spiritual growth in your life. Only God can do that. But what's the common response to severe trials, to any trials and suffering? I don't know about you, but my common response is to resist to start questioning God, start questioning everything. Uh, we were common response is to do what Job did. Why? <laughs> if I remember the correct count, Job asked God why 19 times in the book of Job. God never answered why. He answered who. That's all Job needed to know. He needed to know who God was. And sometimes the test that we go through are so hard that we, we want to drop out, don't we? Man, this is hard. I don't like this. The fire is hot. And so we want to drop out of God's training school altogether and find something easier. But we need to realize that God's trials are not optional. You're not helping yourself if you drop out. In fact, they're actually essential for your Christ-likeness. They're essential for spiritual maturity you look at verse 19 it really gives helpful advice as we face trials notice that when in verse 19 when trials come we we got to remember that god is faithful so contrary to what your circumstances are telling you god hasn't abandoned you what we have to do is what hebrews 12 talks about Take our eyes off our circumstances and look at Christ. (laughs) Do exactly the opposite of what Peter did when he's walking on the water. He's looking at his circumstances, looking at the big waves, thinking that's scary. He takes his eyes off Christ, and what did he do? As soon as he takes his eyes off Christ, he sinks. That's our problem. We all do that. You might want to attack Peter and say, oh, you wimp. Well, I'd like to see you walk on water. <laughs> you get out of the boat and start walking on the water. I've never done that. And so we've got to remember God's faithful. He hasn't abandoned us. So forget about what the cynics are telling you. Forget about listening to yourself. You've got to preach to yourself. God hasn't forgotten you. He is faithful. And we, we can trust He's working out His purposes for our ultimate good. Do you believe Romans 8.28? All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. You say, well, what's the good? Well, that's in the next verse. The good is He is molding you into the image of Christ. That might require some trials. In fact, it probably will. Probably will. That's His ultimate good. And so when you doubt whether God's kept His promise, whatever that promise is, whether, you know, Hey, he said he's not going to forsake you. You need to remember he is the faithful creator. And so this truth about God's faithfulness leads us to a specific action in verse 19. God wants you to rest in him. ESV says you're entrusting your soul. 
that's even more than your body. <laughs> that's everything. And so the key word there is entrust. The word means you're to place something in the care of another. In other words, take your hands off your life and give it to someone who's bigger and better than you are. <laughs> All right, you're, you're making a deposit for safekeeping. Maybe you you might do that with a bank. You might have a lot of money. What do you? Do you well, you might be like some people and stick it under your mattress, but I don't want to do that, right? Some people put it in a safety deposit box in the bank or or a safe somewhere they think is safe. They don't just leave it, leave it laying in the open for people to steal it. That's the idea here. You're entrusting your very soul in a safe place. Why? Because he's faithful and he's powerful. And therefore we can entrust our entire life to him. Let me just get practical for a moment. Let's say you go to see the doctor and the x-ray shows some bad news. Remember, God is faithful. Let's say you get some bad news about one of your children. Remember, God is faithful. Let's say the boss says, you need to look for another job. Your job is done. Remember, God is faithful. It seems like I've experienced all those anyway, but God uses those things in my life, and he'll use them in yours. My problem is I don't always remember God is faithful. But how do you remember that God is faithful? You may say, well, how do I do that? Especially in the moment. It can be difficult. Well, the way is you prepare yourself ahead of time. You meditate on the right content. <laughs> and you do that through His Word. How do we fully entrust ourselves to God? Well, how are we going to finally rest in Him? Well, you have to understand that word entrust. Remember, you're, you're going to mentally deposit yourself into someone else's keeping. In this case, it's you're mentally entrusting your entire life and being into God's safekeeping. And when you do, guess what? It yields peace and joy in this life. It's also going to yield eternal rewards in the next life. And so the concept here of entrusting our souls to God during trials, really turning our situation over to God. You need to do that in prayer. Have a conversation with God. It also means you're revealing your struggles to God's people, to the church. See, God designed us to live in community. I get to talk to you, you can talk to me, and uh, it, it's, it's like the book of Ecclesiastes talks about, a, a rope is stronger than a single strand. Why is a rope stronger than a single strand? Because it's got lots of strands all weaved together. That's the way God designed community. We're stronger together than we are individually. And so we reveal our struggles to the church and they, we can help each other through our trials. It means continuing to do this moment by moment as the fiery trial continues to burn in your life and then when those trials come, and by the way, they will. Peter says, don't be surprised. They're going to come. James says the same thing, chapter 1. And when they come, we can then be confident in who God is. That he is faithful. He is the great creator. And so, my friend, here's the question, though. Who or what are you going to rest in? Where is your soul being kept? Is it in a safe place? <laughs> is, it, is it with God, the faithful creator, the only one who can help you and enable you to get through that severe trial? If it's not, my friend, well, it starts with salvation. It starts with salvation. If you've never put your faith, your belief, and your trust in Christ, then you are not in a safe place. You're like these people that Peter's talking about here. You're, these people who haven't obeyed the gospel of God, you're in, in a bad situation, my friend. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? You're in trouble. You don't want to be there. So I invite you to come to Christ. The only place your soul is safe. But my Christian friend, you have to continually 
do this. It is a continuous attitude to continually entrusting your soul, even after salvation. As a believer, I have to do this every day. Because my natural tendency is to wake up in the morning and say, forget about God. Bad of me, but sometimes I get out of bed and I I don't even pray when I first get out of bed. My first response should be, good morning, God. What do you have for me today? (laughs) I need to talk to him. I don't always do that first thing in the morning. But that ought to be our natural response. Okay, another day. What does God want me to do? I'm going to serve Him. I'm going to love Him. I'm going to love people. It's His will. Whatever that looks like, bring it on. And I'm going to not be surprised and I'm going to rejoice. That is the response that God wants us to have in trials. And there's some things He's told us to remember. If you don't believe that kind of good theology, you, my friend, are in trouble. (laughs) You will not endure. You will fall. But God is there. He's given us His Spirit. It says that God rests upon you. The issue is, do you believe that? And do you live like that? Do you continually call upon Him and living in His presence and His strength? So I call you, I urge you to come. Come. Entrust your soul to the faithful Creator. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Peter in these glorious words, helpful, practical words. This, this is hard. We cannot do this in our own strength. In fact, this is, this is impossible. Our natural response is to be surprised and to ask why and to grumble and complain and Certainly not be glad and rejoice in severe trials, but we ask you to do this work for your honor and glory and for the world to see how glorious you are. May, your, may you be glorified in our suffering and in our deaths and even in our torture. May we, may we see that you suffered, that Christ suffered, We should expect it. We should rejoice in going through sufferings like he did. May we have the right perspective, good theology. May that drive us to right thinking, right living. So open our eyes, we pray, that we would not just see these things, but we would be doers and live them before a watching world, before unbelievers before those who even persecute us. May they see Christ in and through us. Do a great work through us, through our response to trials, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.